All right, well, let's turn to the longest miracle account found in the Gospels, John chapter 11, the resurrection of Lazarus from the grave. We have worked through the first 37 verses of this chapter in three sermons, and poor Lazarus is still in the grave. The fact that John devotes so much attention to this one miracle, especially when John has only selected seven total miracles, tells you this miracle is of great importance for understanding the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let's quickly review three points that will really help us orient the passage. First, the raising of Lazarus is John's seventh and final sign, that's before the resurrection, demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Second, the raising of Lazarus occurred near the end of Jesus' public ministry. We're in John 11, but we're actually very close to the end of Jesus' ministry. And thirdly, the raising of Lazarus triggers the final conflict in Jerusalem between Jesus and the Jews that will culminate in his arrest, trial, and death. But of course, Jesus refused to stay dead. What happened to Lazarus is merely a prelude to the much more significant miracle still to come. John 11, then, is a kind of orientation or reorientation in our thinking to prepare us for the second half of the book so that we really understand resurrection. Now, we've also been developing two central facts. Two facts concerning the Christian doctrine of the resurrection. First, Jesus himself is the source of all resurrection life. He made that explicit in verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. So friend, don't look anywhere else for resurrection life. You will not find it. Jesus is the resurrection And that's because, as the two words, I am, imply, Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus is the creator God, the covenant God of the Old Testament, the God of Israel, the God who manifests himself in the burning bush. Yahweh is the resurrection and the life, and Jesus is Yahweh, the great I am. And just to be certain what type of life Jesus is talking about, John adds in verse 26, And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's a very important clarification. Lazarus' temporary resurrection, we don't know how long he lived, was merely a prelude to a much greater resurrection still to come. And the second great truth of Christian resurrection, as illustrated by Lazarus, is that resurrection is bodily resurrection. Jesus brought Lazarus' body back to life, not merely his soul. Now certainly Lazarus died again, but the point is Jesus can actually raise up a dead body. His power is not limited to human souls. He can raise bodies from the grave. And then finally, by way of review, we've also discovered in John 11 an emphasis that we have seen frequently in John's Gospel, and that is that John pays very careful attention to Jesus' dialogues with individuals. John lets you listen in on Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. 
the woman at the well, the man born blind, the man at Bethesda, and several disciples. Already in chapter 11, we've overheard Jesus' conversations with Martha and then with Mary, the sisters of Lazarus. Now, curiously, John gives us no record of Jesus' dialogue with Lazarus. Isn't that interesting? John's emphasis on Mary and Martha tells you that Jesus was equally interested in the sisters, not just the recipient of a powerful miracle. In fact, in verse 28, we discovered last week that Jesus came to Bethany seeking not only Lazarus, but Mary. Mary, the teacher, is here and is calling for you. Now, again, when it's all said and done, Lazarus is the one with a dramatic miracle, the dramatic testimony, but Mary is equally important to Jesus. We're often tempted to think that Jesus cares more for people who have those dramatic testimonies. We can almost grow envious of people's dramatic conversion narratives. Christians are sometimes tempted to embellish their testimonies. But friends, a dramatic testimony is no prerequisite for extraordinary faith, not at all. In John 11, Jesus' attention is drawn first to the sisters, not to Lazarus, who ends up with the greater story in the end. He was resurrected. But when Jesus first returned to Bethany, he decided Lazarus can wait. He's not going anywhere after all. Let's deal with Martha and Mary first. But now at long last, Lazarus has waited long enough. Jesus took four days to reach him, and it has taken us four sermons to finally reach him too. But at long last, let us witness his resurrection. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now, last week, we gave some attention to the emotional life of Jesus. In verse 35, Jesus wept. And now verse 38 tells us we dare not think of his emotional display as some sort of transitory, whimsical episode in an otherwise stoic life. Look at the text. Jesus was deeply moved again. Whatever provoked, Jesus' initial emotional response provoked a second. 
And as we discovered last week, it really is impossible to specifically say what elicited his response. Was it sorrow over the curse, the brokenness of the world? Was it grief over seeing so many people distraught? Was it a kind of emotional sorrow that follows anger? As we saw last week, verse 33 is rightly translated as Jesus being angry, probably at disbelief, before becoming sorrowful. Whatever the case, Jesus was a man of sorrows and well acquainted with grief. He had no doubt witnessed many deaths, probably even that of his adopted father, Joseph. Perhaps the final journey to Lazarus' tomb just floods his mind with all these memories, painful memories of death. But again, we cannot say precisely why he wept, but the fact that Jesus grieved once and then grieved again is highly significant. We are sometimes misled to believe that a little grief might be okay, a single emotional vetting session might be okay, but grieving a second time? Well, that's surely a sign of despair and lack of faith, but not so. Jesus grieved, and he grieved again. Sometimes, friends, God does not intend for us to simply snap out of it. Jesus flawlessly demonstrated human emotions once and again without sin. Now, of course, there's a very happy episode that follows. But don't neglect that very important truth there in verse 38. Jesus was deeply moved again. Jesus now comes to the tomb. It was likely a tomb hewn out of one of the many rock outcroppings in the area. Some first century tombs were actually dug horizontally, that are right, right into a cliff face, and others were dug, dug vertically right down to the ground. Either way, these tombs were sealed shut with a large rock that was just rolled over the entrance. There's actually a place in Israel that you can visit today that has traditionally been associated with the raising of Lazarus, but we don't know for sure it's authentic. It goes back to the 4th century, but not earlier. When Jesus arrives, he commands that the stone be removed. And Martha, the sister who seems to sort of take charge in family circumstances, immediately objects on the grounds that the body is already decaying. Don't do that. And her objection confirms that she still does not understand Jesus' doctrine of resurrection. Despite her earlier conversation with Jesus, she does not expect to see her brother's body emerge from the tomb. Don't open it. Don't let that body out. Now, Jesus responds to Martha's resistance in verse 40 with a pointed question. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Now, in Jesus' earlier conversation with Martha, we did not actually hear him referencing her seeing the glory of God. But that should not trouble us. John actually, at this point, may be simply giving us more of the dialogue that he didn't record earlier. Or, Jesus' question may be a kind of summary of the whole earlier dialogue. That's the main point, Martha. You should have gotten it. Either way, Jesus' statement is remarkable or preposterous, depending on your view of his identity. 
Jesus assumes that what he is about to do is a revelation of the glory of God. Look at the text. You would see the glory of God. What you're about to see is a revelation of God's glory. His statement is a not-so-subtle declaration of his own deity. I mean, what if I told you, look, what you're about to see me do is a revelation of the glory of God. You would say, that's preposterous. But even before Jesus returned to Bethany, he knew that what happened there would be a true manifestation of his glory. We know that because of verse 4. Look back at verse 4. When Jesus heard it, he said, This illness, that's Lazarus' illness, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God, that's Jesus, may be glorified through it. Jesus implied that what happened to Lazarus, all right, would equally bring glory to God and glory to himself. They are equally due the same glory. That's what Jesus is claiming. And friends, to really appreciate what's about to transpire in this resurrection of Lazarus, we need to turn back to John chapter 5. I know you keep thinking, okay, when is Lazarus ever going to rise? Okay, we've got to go all the way back to John chapter 5 now. In John chapter 5, Jesus performed an earlier sign that becomes really, really important. Some of our teens this last week were giving me a hard time for working ahead of my sermons. And uh, they wanted to know how far I work in advance. And I said, at this point, I'm about seven months ahead of my preaching schedule. And they said, why would you do that? And I said, well, I do that because I really want to know where the whole book is going. That's really, really crucial. Sometimes expositional preaching is misunderstood. Sometimes people think of that as, well, that's just preaching verse by verse in a chronological progression. In other words, it's sometimes thought to mean, well, read verse 1 and make a few comments. Read verse 2 and make some more comments. Read verse 3 and make some more comments and just work your way all the way through the book. Well, that's, that's partly true. But you've got to recall there were no chapter or verse divisions in the original autographs. And in fact, the books of the Bible were written as complete literary units. They're not a string of pearls like a string of verses all strung together. They're complete literary units. And the authors of Scripture understood and used a variety of genres and concepts like thematic development and foreshadowing and suspense, as well as a host of other literary devices. In my estimation, expositional preaching really seeks to appreciate the organization and the craft of an author that he uses to compose the entire text. Expositional preaching has to maintain a sense of the whole book, even while commenting on specific passages. That's what I try to explain to our teens. Simply making an observation about each verse actually can degenerate into eisegesis. Eisegesis asks the question, well, what can I say about this text? Exposition asks, well, what does this text say? You see the difference? What can I say about this text? 
Alright? But no, what does the text actually say? And to understand what does the text say, you have to constantly keep in mind the whole structure, the whole book. In other words, you sort of have to see the forest and the trees simultaneously. You're looking at the whole thing even while looking at the individual parts. And I'm convinced that biblical authors were brilliant men, and they were inspired by an infinitely wise spirit, and their texts are rather complex and beautiful. All that to say, there is a tremendous amount of suspense and foreshadowing that has been building all the way through John's Gospel. And John 5 in particular really is crucial, really, really crucial for helping us understand John chapter 11, and then John chapter 11 is crucial for what happens next in the second half of the book with Christ's death and resurrection. So we've got to go all the way back to John chapter 5. And I have to confess that I had never noticed a connection before, but the very week that I was actually developing today's sermon on Lazarus' resurrection, I was preparing to preach on John 5 to our church. And all of a sudden, I mean, it was just like this light bulb went on. All of a sudden it was like, oh, oh, these two passages are connected. i just never seen it before. The connection became really, really clear. In John 5, Jesus spontaneously healed a man at Bethesda after 38 years of infirmity. But he healed the man on the Sabbath, provoking an enormous controversy with the Jews. And they, in turn, sought to persecute Jesus. When the Jews accused Jesus of equating himself with God in John 5, Jesus did not back down an inch. In fact, he proceeded to stake out his true identity as God with claim after claim after claim that only God could make. Now, we'll not rehearse all of that at the moment, but let's glance back at the scene just momentarily and just let it point like an arrow forward to John chapter 11. In verse 16, Jesus is charged with a Sabbath violation. But notice his response in verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Jesus literally claimed that God the Father was working on the Sabbath. Worse yet, the pronoun my implied his identity with the Father. Jesus was conscious of a unique relationship that he had with God. And the Jews understood what Jesus was claiming. That becomes clear in verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even even calling God his own Father making himself equal with God. That's what the Jews assume that Jesus is doing. He's making himself equal with God. Well, is Jesus really equal with God? If ever there was a time for Jesus to sort of back down and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me, let me clarify here. All right, I don't want any misunderstanding. He's getting persecuted. If ever there was a time to really clarify who he was, Jesus should take the opportunity Surely Jesus should clear up any misunderstanding. I mean, if somebody accuses me of some misunderstanding, they say, we're going to kill you. I'm going to be like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me clear this up, all right? 
You would too. So what does Jesus do when they accuse him of making himself out to be one with the Father? Verse 19, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, that's me, Jesus, can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus literally claims that the Father initiates all his actions. Well, if that's the case, everything Jesus does is perfect. Because he and the Father are of one mind. They are in complete accord. Jesus does exactly the things that God would do. And keep reading verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And, look at this, greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. And that statement is either true or totally preposterous. How many of you claim that God reveals all of his actions to you? Yeah, God like tells me everything he's up to. And notice how Jesus proceeds to claim even greater works are still to come. You just wait. Well, what could be a greater work than telling a man lying at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years to stand up and walk? I mean, that's a really incredible miracle. It's been 38 years. Stand up and walk. What are these greater works still to come? Answer, how about telling a dead man to stand up and walk? Verse 21 For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Jesus is claiming not only can I heal a man at Bethesda after 38 years, I can actually raise the dead. Now, if you're a believer, if you're one of Christ's disciples and you heard Him make this claim... Wouldn't you start anticipating a resurrection miracle? Like, when's he going to do this? Wouldn't you follow him around wondering when he might just pull this whole thing off? Might you also have some doubts? Is that, is that really what he meant? How exactly does he give life to the dead? And notice also the sheer audacity of Jesus' claim. Of course, God the Father can raise the dead. However, Jesus does not claim that God the Father gives him power to raise the dead. Friends, Jesus does not borrow power. Jesus is not a conduit of power like one of those Old Testament prophets who are momentarily empowered by God. Jesus actually claims that he can grant life to whom he Will. Look at the end of verse 21. So also the Son of Man gives life to whom he will. Friends, that is extraordinary power. As great a sign as healing a man after 38 years of the pool of Bethesda, raising a dead man to life by one's own will is certainly a greater miracle still. When you see someone raise the body of a person by his own willpower, 
what can you conclude but you have just witnessed the very glory of God? What else could you conclude? Now observe that when you put verses 19 and 21 together, it becomes apparent that Jesus' will and God the Father's will are one and the same. In verse 19, Jesus says he does nothing of his own accord. But in verse 21, he says he gives life to whom he will. Well, when you put those two ideas together, what Jesus is assuming is that God's will, the Father's will, and Jesus' will are one and the same. Now again, surely after hearing Jesus speak this way, you would go looking for an example of Jesus actually raising the dead. And when you see that, you know that the Father's will and the Son's will have united to manifest the glory of God. So hold on to that thought. And while we're here in John 5, skip ahead to verse 25, where Jesus' claims about his relationship with the Father become laser-focused. Laser-focused on their united agenda to raise the dead. Verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Now, friends, this is an utterly astonishing statement. Jesus, like the Father, is the source of all life. And an hour is coming when he will resurrect the dead to life by his voice. He speaks, and the dead will emerge from their tombs. It was a voice that originally called the world into existence out of nothing, And Jesus now claims his voice will raise the dead because he has the same authority as the Father. Now, just as an aside, don't read verses 26 and 27 as an indication that Jesus derived his power from the Father in the same sense that Old Testament prophets derived their power from God. We've already heard Jesus say he performs miracles by his will. What Jesus means in those verses is that God has ordained for Jesus to become incarnate as a man and as a man to exercise authority and judgment. No other man would have such power, but Jesus does. Why? Verse 27, because he's the Son of Man. And that Son of Man, as Daniel 7 insists, is in fact the Son of God. So Jesus isn't deriving power, but the power that he shows off is really a declaration of who God said he is. You are the Son of Man. You are my Son even in your incarnation. All right? But what I really want to draw your attention to is that crucial statement back in verse 25. Jesus says, not only is the hour of the resurrection coming, it is already here. Now, in verse 28, he's speaking of the future, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. But in verse 25, he says, the hour is already here. The hour of resurrection has already come. Now, of course, spiritually, Paul tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And through the gospel, we have been made alive together with Christ. So spiritually speaking, 
the hour of our resurrection has already come. But friends, is biblical resurrection more than mere spiritual resurrection? Let's go back to that second great truth. The resurrection that Jesus is talking about isn't merely spiritual, it's bodily resurrection. So can Jesus actually raise a dead body from the grave by his voice? Has the hour come for that, yes or no? So again, if I overheard this whole conversation in John 5, I would really be wondering, okay, when is Jesus going to do this? When is this greater work that he's talking about actually going to happen? Well, keep all that in mind, and let's return once again to John chapter 11. Lazarus is still in the tomb. John 11. Now again, in John 5, Jesus says a greater work is coming. And both the Father and Jesus intend to raise the dead. In John 11, Jesus asked Martha, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So when you link the raising of Lazarus with Jesus' earlier miracles in John, it becomes apparent that Jesus' miracles really do indeed come to a crescendo when he summons Lazarus from the grave. That's why, again, this is the seventh and the final sign. We've reached a moment when we see Jesus' will and the Father's will perfectly united to perform the seventh and final sign, a sign even greater than healing a man after 38 years of infirmity. The time has come at last, in verse 41, to roll back the stone. But just before Jesus speaks to Lazarus, Jesus speaks to his father. So Lazarus, you can wait. Read again verses 41 through 42 in light of John chapter 5. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing by, that they may believe that you sent me. Now this is a really fascinating prayer for three reasons. First, notice how Jesus communicates directly with the Father in full assurance that God the Father hears everything that he says. We saw the same thing in John 5. Jesus and the Father are always of one mind. Not a shadow of difference between them. And that's because they communicate constantly. They are of one accord. Now on one level, we know that God is all-knowing. And God hears the words of every prayer ever prayed. Do you realize that? God even hears the words of pagans to their false gods. I mean, God knows everything. God hears the verbal sounds emitting from their lips or even the unexpressed thoughts of their hearts. That is true. An all-knowing God can't help, help but hear everything. But that's not the sense that he's talking about here. When Jesus says, you have heard me, he means by that that God actually agrees with him. God agrees with Jesus. He listens to everything Jesus says in complete agreement. When Jesus says, you have heard me, he means, God, I know you agree with everything that I'm saying. 
And as I read that, I, I, I wonder, you know, have we ever thought about whether God agrees with our prayers? That's a really interesting question to ask, isn't it? Does God actually agree with our prayers? How many of you have prayed about something, let's say, in the last six months, and you know what you, what you wanted to have happen didn't happen? All right? Not more of you? Come on. Okay. <laughs> You're just afraid to put your hand. That happens all the time. Like, God, here's what you need to do. Could you do this? And it's like, no. <laughs> I'm not listening to you. <laughs> uh, I think we pray that way sometimes. But Jesus says, look, God actually agrees with me. Jesus can say in verse 42 that God always hears me, that is, God listens in complete agreement with me. In fact, Jesus never prays amiss. Secondly, Jesus' prayer implies that he has already asked for Lazarus' life to be restored. When he says in verse 41, you have heard me, he's speaking in the past tense. Jesus has already talked to God, the Father, about Lazarus. And Lazarus' resurrection has already been determined. Now remember the statement we read a moment ago in John 5. Jesus said, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. God is showing Jesus what he's about to do. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Well, God has already revealed to Jesus his determination to do this greater work. He's already revealed to him, yes, Lazarus will rise. This is the greater work that's coming. And the third thing that you'll notice about the prayer is that it's quite consistent with everything we've already seen in John 11. And that is that Jesus is concerned for everybody around him. He's concerned not only for Lazarus, but for Mary and Martha and everyone in the crowd. And that's why verse 42 reads this way. I knew that you always hear me. There was never any doubt about that. But I said this on account of the people standing by, that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus really does care about us, the bystanders. And he is not merely pandering to the crowd to show off his power. He really wants us, the crowd, to understand his own intimate relationship with the Father. He speaks publicly to the Father so that we all understand that he is related to God, the Father, in equality. And again, this is precisely what we learned back in John 5. Jesus said, John 5, 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For what the Father does, the Son does likewise. That's why he's praying this way. So everybody understands that. The raising of Lazarus really then is an illustration of John 5 and verse 19. Whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. He and the Father are one. And Jesus wants everyone standing around to understand his relationship of solidarity with the Father. So friends, when you put all that together, this this is no random miracle. This is not just some sort of show-off of Jesus' power. This really is very, very strategic. Jesus and the Father have a joint mission to see the dead raised. Now, having said all that, notice one thing that Jesus does not, ask, does not ask for in this prayer, and that is he does not request power to raise Lazarus. Jesus said in John 5 that he does these things by his own will. He doesn't request power. Jesus' prayer concerns, again, us the bystanders, and he wants you to know that his will and the Father's will are identical. 
And their united, their united agenda that we learned about back in John 5 is now going to be illustrated. It's going to be illustrated when at long last we hear Jesus, by his voice, raise a dead man. Verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, to them, unbind him and let him go. So friends, what you just read is proof of John 5 and verse 25. An hour is coming and is now here. It's now here when the dead will hear the voice. Whose voice? The voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. The hour has come. But the story of Lazarus isn't merely about Lazarus. What you just read is equally proof of John 5 and verse 28. Do not marvel at this, Jesus said, for an hour is coming when all who were in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Can Jesus' voice actually raise the dead like that? What's the answer? Yes, Lazarus. That's the answer. This again is John's seventh and climactic sign demonstrating that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. And this again is John's purpose statement in John 20, 30-31. Now Jesus did many other signs. In the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, I could have told you a lot of other things. But these are written... The resurrection of Lazarus is written. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Do you understand, my friend, that through belief in Jesus, you have life? Is that even possible? Well, Jesus proved that His will is identical to the Father's will when He raised a dead man to life. And Jesus can and will summon the dead to life again. Now, friends, as I mentioned earlier in the sermon, isn't it curious that we never hear Lazarus speak? We never hear Lazarus speak in John chapter 11. Well, wouldn't you like to know his reaction to being raised? I mean, what was that like? Did he have any after death experiences? Ever hear of these things? Did he see angels or hear heavenly music or have an out of body experience? Did he sort of float over the grave for a while? What did he say to Jesus when he came out of the tomb? Like, hey, thanks, or, you know. How did the family react? What happened next? Actually, we're not told. You know why? Because none of that is the point. We don't need a dramatic testimony from Lazarus. We don't need Lazarus on the evening news. We don't need him writing a book about his after-death experiences and selling millions of copies and becoming a celebrity. We don't need Lazarus out there on the circuit, you know, telling his story and raising money. The, the whole narrative really was all along all about Jesus. The whole thing just points straight to Jesus. It points ultimately to the voice, the logos, the voice that raises the dead. The point is, Jesus can resurrect the dead by his voice. 
And if you believe this sign, John says that by believing you have life in his name. So again, the passage never was about Lazarus. It was always, always about Jesus. And that's why even before he raised Lazarus, Jesus dealt with Martha and Jesus insisted in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Friends, that is the point of the passage. That's it right there. And that statement prepares us for everything still to come in John's gospel. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Shall we pray? Lord, I pray for anyone here today who is a seeker. We are glad that they're here today. And I pray, Lord, that they, Lord, would look beyond even hearing my voice and hear the voice of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that the voice of Jesus has already proven that it can call the dead back to life again. And I pray, Lord, for that person here today who may be very intrigued by Jesus, but as yet has not embraced him as the resurrection of life. Lord, we pray that that person, man or woman, would look beyond this sermon and see Christ. In fact, let's just give ourselves a moment. And if that's you today, would you just ask the Lord Jesus Christ to make himself known to you through the Spirit? Would you just consider calling on him for salvation? Calling on him to grant you life, resurrection, eternal resurrection life. To our children and our teens. You feel like you have so much time ahead of you and got the rest of your life ahead of you. You'll blink and you'll be 45. You'll blink again and you'll be 80. You don't have as much time as you think. And you need resurrection life every bit as much as the elderly members of our church. Would you consider calling on Jesus Christ as the resurrection of life? Confess your sin to him. Claim his cross. He died on the cross for your sins. He died so that you could die. And he resurrected so that you could live. Even if you've already talked with your parents about this, you can always confess it again in your hearts. If there's anyone here today that would like a little more help, feel free to Fill out the connect card and drop that in the box on the way out or greet me at the door on the way back or one of our elders here. We'd be very, very happy to talk with you some more. Father, we're so thankful for Christ. We're thankful for this delightful passage. We're thankful for the Christ 
whose prayers are always, always, always answered. We're thankful for a Christ, a mediator who prays in complete agreement with your will. And Lord, what a delight it is that Christ is our mediator and can bring us into your presence and plead our case and plead his blood. And we know that you are in complete agreement with your Son, our Mediator. And so, Lord, we ask that you would hear the prayers of Christ on our behalf, because we know you do. And we pray that we would submit to the prayers of Christ on our behalf and accept them as your will. We pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.